Well, good morning. You picked a great Sunday to come to church this morning. So let me pray for us and we will study God's word together. Father, we, um, we are grateful for your word. We desire to be among those, Lord, who tremble at your word, who take, uh, as Roy mentioned, these things written as the very words of God to your people and to this world. Um, There is in these verses help and hope and challenge for us. But God, in order to see it, we need your spirit to come and to illumine your word. God, would you, use, uh, would you use me to do just that for my brothers and sisters? Help us, Lord, to see ourselves in all of the right places and to see Christ here in all of the right places. Um, we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. All right, so you're in Genesis chapter 19. And I, uh, have you guys ever heard the country song, um, I, come, I Come From a Long Line of Losers? You know that song? I come from a long line of losers, half outlaws, half boozers. I was born with a shot glass in my hand, uh, part hippie, a little redneck. I'm always a suspect. My bloodline made me what I am. And he talks about his, uh, his parents and just like in his, in his forebears. Um, that's probably a great title for this, uh, for this text because, like it or not, these are your people. These are your people in the faith. The New Testament calls Lot a righteous man. He's one of us. You will spend an eternity with this fellow, like it or not. And you should like it. So what I want to do is I want to, uh, I want to observe this text with you. And I'll just say before, um, before we dig in, uh, our church devotes itself to, to a practice called expository preaching. Which means we pick a book of the Bible... We start in the beginning and we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible. The reason we do that is because this is the word of God and some of its parts would never get preached if it was up to me to say, you know, what I really want to talk about today is incest and uh, and lots, you know, two daughters. Like that's not any like I would never in prayer and, and fasting just say, you know, I think I want to teach these this these verses. And because of that, you would never hear a sermon on them. So expository preaching is helpful because God chooses for us what will be taught in the church, right? So we're, this is part of God's word, and we're going to look at it um, together. And there is help and there is hope in these verses for you. So what I want to do, much like last week, we're just going to do a running commentary as we observe these things so we can kind of see it for all of its parts, and then I'll have some... Um, particular things that should challenge the way that we see ourselves, the way we see God, um, and and way we can apply these verses. So if you start in verse 29, if you remember, um, I told you last week, Genesis chapter 18 and 19 are one unit. They should be one chapter so that we wouldn't get confused and think, well, 18 is about one thing and 19 is about another. This text all has to do with God's covenant dealings with Abraham and everybody who's connected to Abraham. Remember, in the Abrahamic covenant, God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And ultimately, as we've talked about, that comes to fruition through Christ. 
But this is a uh, this is a, a prefiguring of the way God deals with covenant people through Christ. God is kind to Lot because Lot knows Abraham, and because Abraham has prayed for Lot. So in verse twenty nine. We're told that as Lot was delivered out of Sodom before God wiped the valley clean, he got his righteous people out. In verse 29, we're told why. It's not because Lot was so good. It's not because Lot had all of his stuff together. There's a lot about Lot that we don't love. But we're told in verse 29, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham, not Lot. But Abraham, we would expect it to read, God remembered Lot, because Lot was a good dude. But we've just read that text last week, and we realized, like, Lot is a righteous man, but he's not a good dude. He's got a lot of problems. But God remembered Abraham. And because he remembered Abraham, he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Okay? Now, in verse 30... You're going to see Lot do something that uh, could be phrased too little, too late. Look in verse 30. Now, Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two stepdaughters. Now, if you pause, if you remember some of the details of last week, that when the angels had to grab Lot and his wife and his daughters by the hand and drag them out of Sodom to get them to leave, do you remember the first thing that they told him, the first place they told him to go was to the hills? Um, and I, I told you last week, I think that God was that the, the angels were sending Lot back to Abraham, who was standing on the hills uh, over uh, like watching over God's destruction of uh, of the valley. And so he was commanded to go to the hills. But do you remember what he said? It's like, no, it, uh, if you if you look in uh, verse 18 of chapter 19, Lot said to them, oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found uh, favor in your sight, you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. So he's afraid. God is rescuing him out of judgment and he's saying, I, I, I can't make it all the way there. You gotta, you gotta give me someplace shorter. And so he's afraid and he intercedes for this little city called Zoar. And they, and they say, um, Behold, in verse 21, Behold, I grant you this favor also. I will not overthrow the city of which you've spoken. Promise. You can go there and you'll be safe there. It was a bad prayer from Lot, but the Lord um, says, I'll I'll honor it so you you can go there. Escape there quickly. I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city is called Zoar. Now, all of a sudden, he's been in Zoar. We're not told exactly how long, but in verse 30... Now, Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters. Why is he doing that? We might think, if we're not told anything else, maybe, maybe Lot is finally uh, wanting to obey the Lord. Maybe that's what it is, is he, is he realized, no, I shouldn't have stopped here. I should have just taken him at his word and gone into the hills. That's not what the text says. Keep reading. For, why did he go live in the hills? For, he was afraid to live in Zoar. Why is he afraid? Why is he afraid? Can you come up with an explanation for why Lot would be afraid? Sometimes when we read cataclysmic judgment and devastation in the scripture, we don't wear what that would impact us as human beings. Can you imagine for a moment if you lived in, let's say, I don't know, LaGrange and 
God said, run, run to the bluff. I'm about to wipe out LaGrange. And you saw it happen. Do you imagine that that might cause you to, to live um, a little more acutely in the fear of the Lord? That God is a holy God. That he does see what's going on on earth. He does bring judgment for sin. There seems to be um, sort of an awakening in Lot of the, of the fear of the Lord. But, it's a, but it's, a, um, it's a fear gone rogue. For those of you who have read the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, in the last battle. Aslan, uh, or a poser, somebody who is doing a lot of evil things in Aslan's name, uh, is doing all of these things. And the justification that all of the Narnians are given is Aslan is not a tame lion, which is what you learn about Aslan in the first book. He's not a tame lion. He's not a tame lion. And those of us who have read the first book are saying, no, he's not a tame lion, but we learned something else about God in the first book. What is it? We learned something else about Aslan. He's not a tame lion, but what does Mr. Beaver tell us? But he is good. He's not tame. He's dangerous. He's the most dangerous person you'll ever meet. But he's good. Our God is that way. He is not a tame God. You do not have him in your pocket. The secularists do not have him in in their pockets. God will bring judgment either uh, eternally to sinners or uh, temporally to Christ for those who trust in him. But God always brings judgment. He's not a tame God He's not a soft God. He's a holy God and a dangerous God, but he is good. Lot is afraid lest the judgment of God be poured out upon Zoar, even though he shouldn't be because God promised he wasn't going to bring judgment. And so you have this wrong kind of fear in Lot and you have uh, what one commentator called a living death. Where does he go? He doesn't go to Abraham, which is where he was supposed to go. It says that so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. You know, every time a cave is mentioned, it's mentioned as a burial place in the book of Genesis. To my knowledge, this is where um, Abraham buries Sarah. This is where so many people are buried is in a cave. And so this is picturing Lot as, as, uh, as a living death. He was a wealthy man in Sodom. God brought judgment. He escaped with his life and his two daughters. And now he's living in a cave. Now, can you think of any story that we've read in the book of Genesis so far where you have a cataclysmic judgment of God coming to a place and God saves a very few people out of that judgment, right? You should be thinking in terms of Noah and the flood that was coming and God rescued Noah and he rescued eight, eight people with, uh, uh, including Noah. Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives, eight people. What happened after Noah was delivered and after God saved his people and judged the world? What's the next thing that happened to the guy who was delivered? He planted a vineyard. He got drunk. There was sin against the father by an offspring. And then there was generational cursing that came from that event. We are going to see the exact same thing in this text. This is not accidental. This is showing us there's, there's patterns to the way God deals with the world and the way men respond. Look in verse 31. The firstborn said to the younger. This is amazing. The firstborn is the, is, the honored, uh, is the honored person in a family. And she should be doing honor to her dad. And she's about to do something that shames him forever. 
The firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. How does that grab you as a strategy? What do you think of that? Well, it's easy for us to jump in and judge this woman harshly and say, man, how could you ever, how could you ever do that? Let me, I'm not going to defend her action. Please understand that. Uh, I don't think she does the right thing here. But I want you to, I want you to see uh, her motive in these things. Her motive is not lust. Her motive is not um, just an overweening sense of uh, wanting to have her own way. What is her motive in the text? What does she say she's concerned about? Our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. It's helpful for us to understand right here. She is living this story from the limits of her own perspective. Like she can only see so far. We have divine perspective. We're told what God is thinking and saying. We're told what God has promised to do and not to do. We're told what Abraham is praying. We're we're told all of these details that she's not privy to. This is a woman who grew up in Sodom and Sodom is buried under sulfur and ashes. And so cut her a little bit of slack when she says there's not any men left on the earth. Everybody we've known is gone. The only man who can do what men do with women is our father. It's a bad decision. Please understand that. It's a bad decision. Cut her a little bit of slack to understand she's kind of been through what we might call a really rough weekend. Would you agree with that? Um, This is very similar to the story that we're going to get to with Judah and Tamar. Where, where Tamar does some really shady stuff and we would look and we would say, don't, don't do that, don't do that. Um, but in that text, the, the text says, uh, uh, Judah speaks about Tamar. She has been more righteous than I. We'll study that text when we get there. But I just want you to, I want you to see her motive. Her motive is not, is not lust. Her motive is that she, she desires to have offspring For her father. She's wanting his good. She does something terrible to achieve it. But she wants his good. So in verse 32, this is their plan. Let's make our father drink wine and we will lie with him. That we may preserve offspring for our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It's very interesting in Proverbs 31. There's a text where King Lemuel's mama is telling him as a king not to drink too much wine because you'll get drunk and you'll forget the law and you'll pervert justice. But then she says wine does have a lawful use. Give it to those who are perishing or those who are bitter in heart that they may drink and, uh, and lose sight of their, um, of their bitterness or of their suffering. Just again, before we jump in and say, Lot, how could you have gotten so drunk? What, what an idiot. Just, just think about this. How many of you have experienced a really tough weekend? You've lost, he just lost a spouse. He just lost, I believe, sons and daughters in the overthrow that, that their loyalty was greater to Sodom than they were to, his, to their father. So I believe that he's lost his wife. He's lost children. He's lost neighbors. He's lost friends, people that he's done life with for a long time. Do you think you might 
uh, need some uh, antidepressants after a weekend like that? Like, again, we we are privileged to divine perspective, and um, and we are not right now smelling the smoke of judgment rising from our neighbors, right? So. I'm not justifying his drunkenness. I'm not justifying what she's saying. I just want you to see there's, there's, there's a lot that's at stake here. Same thing with Noah. Right? Noah spends 100 years building an ark and lost, if you, if you do the math on his forebears, most of them died in the flood. So family, uh, there, there's judgment. And if you think there weren't people banging on the outside of the ark saying, let us in, let us in, and what that would have done uh, to you psychologically, like, I don't know. There's, how would you have done? Let's put it that way. How would you have done if you are living in it? You've gone from wealth and a big family. Most of them have died. Now you're all alone in a cave. Would you have fared much better? I tend to think that we, we give ourselves a lot of credit and we give uh, the, the characters of Scripture not very much grace. Um, in their, in their moments of shame. So we see another Noah. We see another Ham. Right? They made their father drink that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her. And he didn't know when she lay down or when she arose. Um, that means he was very intoxicated. Now in verse 34. She's not only going to sin that way. She's going to, the first one is going to incorporate her little sister into the same sin. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. Saying misery loves company comes to mind. Um, yeah, you, you don't want to do certain things alone. You want to have uh, brothers in arms in your, in your sin. We went to play a prank on a neighboring church the other day. And I would never have done that by myself. But there was a crowd of people and it was glorious. You want people with you when you're, um, when you're doing things like, like this, unfortunately. So she says, Let it, let's set him up so that you can go into him as well. So in verse 35, so they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he didn't know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters became pregnant by their father. By the way, is that an excuse? You've drank so much that you don't know when people come or go. Do you get to use that as an excuse for the things that you do in your state of drunkenness? No, you do not. Thus, both, in verse 36, thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. Moab means literally from a father. From, from father. So she, she named him. By the way, this indicates that the, the firstborn and the daughter, uh, the, the first and secondborn, neither of them are ashamed. Right? This, you would expect this to be something that they would say, man, we're really embarrassed that we, that we did, that we failed this way. They didn't. They named their kids after the act. This child shall be called from father, Moab, one of the perennial enemies of God's people. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami, meaning son of my people. He is the 
father of the Ammonites to this day. So two of the perennial enemies of Israel are the Moabites and the Ammonites that come from this act. I will say before we move on to kind of thinking about how this would apply to us. It's very interesting to me. We would imagine when God in his law describes to the Israelites the people groups that are there to have perennial conflict with. There are certain types that he says, do not ever seek the peace of this people. Um, the Moabites and the Ammonites are never, to be, uh, are never to be tolerated in Israel. They're not to come into the assembly. Um, there's a couple things that are important about that. The first is we would expect Moses to say they can't come into the assembly because they were born of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. But that's not what he says. They are exiled from the community because during the exodus, they did not come to the help of Israel. It was their action, not their origin, that kicked them out. And we should also point out that there is a Moabite who comes into the assembly. Is there not? Can you not think of a Moabite woman who came with, uh, with Naomi, who married into the lineage of Jesus Christ and is mentioned in Matthew's gospel as one of the great, great grandmamas of our Savior? It was Ruth, the Moabite. So she, so can God make beauty from ashes? Please say yes. Whatever, whatever kind of ashes you have in your past, whatever kind of um, mulligans, life mulligans you wish you could redo, God can redeem those things and make them and use them for his glory. So, all right. So what do we, how do we think about these things and, and, and uh, how might we, how might we apply? Well, a couple of things, and some of these might not seem directly related to the text, but I think they are, and, and hopefully they'll be helpful to you. The first thing I want to talk to you about is just ca- giving you some categories of thinking through the Scripture. You have, um, you have first of all, a covenant status that is, that is pass or fail, right? Lot had a covenant standing with God that, that meant he was part of God's covenant people. Whether or not he was a good dude, whether or not he was able to toe the line. So you have a covenant, st- a covenant status that is pass or fail. You are in or you are out for us and, and for them. It's are you, are you united to Christ by faith or not? That's the question of your eternity. Are you in him or are you not? And that's a pass or fail game. But there's also what would be called covenant experience or covenant relationship with God that ebbs and flows. You see the difference? One is you are a son or daughter or not. The other is as a son and daughter, your life really does matter. It matters the things that you love, the the life that you live. And so Lot was in covenant with God by relating rightly to Abraham and ultimately, even though he was in covenant with God, his, his life with God left much to be desired. And so you see Lot just continually being sucked into worldliness um, and into allegiance with um, uh, uh, away from Abraham and more so with the world. The New Testament says we'll spend an eternity with this man. But his experience of covenant life with God left much to be desired. So guard your heart, brothers and sisters. Guard your hearts. Your, your past or fail, you're by faith united to Christ. Praise God. But guard your hearts. Because faith always breaks along the fault lines of sin. Like those things that we, that, we, uh, that we love or that we draw close to in the world. 
will always, we, we tend to think that we can manage them, but they always jump up and bite us in the end. And Lot is a prime example of that. John Owen says that there's two reasons we come to Christ to behold him by faith. The first is that we would come behold him by faith so that we could receive from him salvation, forgiveness of sin, covenant standing in God, covenant standing in Christ with the Father. So we come to him for salvation. And secondly, we come to him for abundant life in the same way, by faith alone, beholding him by faith alone. So listen, if you're in Christ covenantally, but you continually go to the world for abundant life, to things that, that don't please, to things that cannot satisfy. Those things are building habits and fault lines into your soul. Beware, brothers and sisters. So you have covenant status, it's a pass or fail game, and then covenant experience or relationship. There, there are some sons that get blessed and that get, uh, get intimacy with God, and there are some sons that get disciplined a lot. So, Covenant status and covenant experience are two different things, so, so guard your heart. Secondly, there are pictures of corporate and personal salvation in the scriptures, like people groups, Moabites, right? Moabites and Ammonites are pictures of covenant um, reprobate, like covenant outside. They're not in the covenant. And then Israel is the, is the picture of corporate, the corporate, the corporate covenant people, but then, interestingly, within those bodies, pictures of, of corporate salvation, pictures of corporate uh, reprobation, within those bodies, there are individuals that get saved and individuals that get damned in both, in both prospects. So, so let me give you an example. There's a text that gives a lot of people a lot of, uh, a lot of hardship when God says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. We say that they were in the womb when God spoke these words over these two twins. We say, what is that? Like God is just like choosing favorites like Jacob is going to be. And ultimately what this means is that God's covenant people is, are not going to, it's not going to come through Esau. It's going to come through Jacob. But listen, I think the scriptures are very plain. We'll spend an eternity with Esau. I think Esau was a believer. He was jacked up much like Lot. There was, there was much to be desiring in, in Esau's dealings within the covenant people. So he's a corporate picture of those that are outside the covenant, but he himself, I believe, is saved. You think of the Egyptians and the Israelites during the Exodus, another great picture, right? Where, where you have this, this corporate body of Egyptians that are seen as those outside the covenant and this corporate body of, of Israelites that are seen as God's covenant people. But within both groups, you have people who are saved and people who are not. Um, and so in Israel or in Egypt during the Exodus, you had people that started to fear the word of the Lord and they started to obey the word of the Lord. You have a mixed multitude that comes out of Egypt with the Israelites. Those are those are even though they're Egyptians, they're they're part of the covenant or part of the community of those outside of the covenant. There are many that get saved. And also there are people in Israel during the, the wilderness wanderings that die. Um, even though they're part of the covenant community that die as, un, as unbelievers. But even there, among that group, you have to say, uh, this is where a lot of guys go wrong with the book of Hebrews, is they, they see um, the promised land as a picture of heaven, and they say is, uh, uh, the, the Exodus generation didn't reach the promised land, which is a picture of heaven, and so they are reprobate. They, they, they weren't saved. And I don't know that you can say that with, with great authority because... 
If you say that everybody in the Exodus generation that didn't make it into the promised land are people who didn't, who weren't saved, you have to say that about Moses and Aaron and Miriam. You have to say that about some of the heroes in Israel, the clear heroes. Moses did not get into the promised land. He fell short like every one of the Exodus generation. Again, it's just a categ- uh, the way that we think categorically about the scriptures is there are, there's one covenant people of God and there's everybody else outside of you know, covenant relationship with God. But there are some people in the outside that personally get saved and there are some people on the inside that personally never believe and are never saved. Case in point, Moab and the Ammonites. There are Moabites who, factor, uh, who are part of the heroic story of God's redemption of his people, okay? Thirdly, how does this text inform the way we think? Brothers, this is a word for you. Soft men make hard times for real women, period. Soft men make hard times for real women. Think about Lot. When I wrote, thinking about these things, I wrote, I wrote that word, soft men. Like, wait. But Lot stepped out to... to meet a mob of sodomites and shut the door behind him knowing that they were probably going to tear him apart maybe gang rape him there Um, showed masterful courage but having done that he offers up his daughters to them right so there's like he's not lacking in courage but he's but but he bails when he needs to be courageous. Same thing here. The angels say, escape to the hills, go back to Abraham. And he won't do it. He's afraid. Well, no, no, no. Let me go to this city. And so the whole thing goes south because ultimately he's a soft, he's a soft man. Proverbs 24.10 says, if, you're, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. So Lot looked well, but in the day of adversity, he fell short. Um, and what that meant for him, what that meant for him is that his daughters are having to, to, they're put in a place where they think they need to commit this heinous act in order to do what God has called women to do, to, to, to partake of that. Okay? So soft men make hard times for real women. Unwise men make hard times for real women. The angels take Lot by the hand and say, go to the hills. And he says, No. Unwise to, to reject the word and the commands of God. Immoderate men make hard times for real women. Um, Lot allowed himself, even though there was, there was great strain, great stress, I don't doubt that at all, but, but he allowed himself to get so drunk that his daughters could take advantage of him. He makes rough, rough time for them. Brothers, your Christ-likeness or lack thereof will build or burn your family to the ground. Can you sit in that for a moment? Your Christ-likeness or your lack thereof will either build or burn your family to the ground. Think about Christ, who is our model of these things. He always had an eye on doing the right thing, being the right person for the sake of his people, right? He says in John 17, he says, for this reason I sanctify myself that you may be sanctified. Like, Christ is going about obeying the Father so that His people can be sanctified in His obedience. Are you impacted by the obedience of Christ? Yes, you are. You have eternal life because He obeyed. Would you have been impacted by the disobedience of Christ? We can't even imagine that scenario. So brothers, we are, we are, in a, in a, mic, we are a microcosm of that for our families. 
Your godliness, your Christ-likeness really does matter. The life we live really does matter. So be, be careful how you walk. Fourth thing that we can gain from these texts. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Listen to me. These girls want well and they mean well. They just watch their father. All of his future, all of, his, uh, all of what's coming from his life by way of wife, sons, daughters, sons-in-law, families. They watch that cut off. So their father, instead of being a tree with lots of fruit that causes other trees to come, he's now a stump. And they say, we want to help. We want to help. Um, this is the same, same with Tamar. She's looking at raising up offspring for a dead person in Israel. She's not even an Israelite. And Judah, who ought to be concerned about the same thing, and it concerns his son, and he's not. So she, her, she doesn't do the right... I don't think she does the right thing. I would counsel her out of those things. I would counsel these two girls out of these things. But you can praise the, the, the desire there. I've told you guys the story before about um, a story that I heard of, a, of a, a stripper who had gotten saved out of that lifestyle. A stripper and a prostitute got saved out of that lifestyle. And she was walking in holiness and then she hears about a mission endeavor going on in their church and they needed funds. And so she went to the pastor and she said, I made so much more money back then and now I'm scraping to meet. I can't, I can't give. I, I don't have anything to give. Should I go back to that lifestyle that I loathe so that I could have something to share with this kingdom activity? Now, obviously the answer is no, don't do that. Other people can give. You don't do it. But, but we should stop and say there's something marvelous about that type of loyalty that she would go back to a lifestyle that she hated in order to benefit the kingdom. A lot of us, man, sometimes won't even lift a, a finger to, to, to be about kingdom endeavors. These women mean well. But listen, meaning well is not enough. Mean well for sure. And then obey. Right? Have all of the greatest intentions and then obey. Let brothers and sisters speak into the, to the process here. Do you think that the, that the firstborn... If she would have gone to her dad and said, hey, there's, there's no more men in the, in the world. Why don't we have offspring together? What do you think he would have said? Not no, but H-E double hockey sticks. No, like, no, we're not doing that. She would have gotten counsel. Get counsel. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. We, we do this all the time. We judge other people on their actions. We judge ourselves by our intentions. Look, I know I did wrong, but I really intended to do the right thing. Well, don't trust your intention. Fifth. Look at the type of people that Jesus saves by his blood. This is marvelous. These are your people and mine. We come from a long line of losers. There is one man that has done well. Only one that has no skeleton in his closet. Every last one of everybody who knows that one man has skeletons in their closet has, you know, we, we read these texts and we all have, breathe a sigh of relief that our story is not being writ in the Word of God for all the people to look at us and go, ugh, yuck. Listen to me. Take hope from these ideas. Christ came to save this man. Well did the hymn writer say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a good dude like me. No, no. 
amazing grace has to save wretches. If it's not, if, if, if the grace of God only saves good people that have no baggage and no sin to repent of and no shame in their past, if the grace of God only saves those people, it is not amazing. But it is amazing grace because it does save wretches. We indeed come from a long line of losers. Lastly, all this helps us to see Christ more clearly. All of this helps us to see a picture of the way God deals with us. So who are we in the... All of this helps us to see a picture of the way of who Christ is and how he deals with us in Christ. So place yourself in the story and I know you don't want to do it. Who are you in this story? Let me promise you, you're not Abraham. You're not Abraham. The, the one-to-one, Abraham is a, is, a, is a tiny picture of Christ. Who are you in the story? You're Lot, brothers and sisters. You are Lot. Abraham. Remember the picture we talked about praying that Abraham stays behind. The angels go, Abraham stays behind in the presence of the Lord. He's right there with the Father. And then before he intercedes with the Father, it says he drew close to him and he reasoned with God. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And he interceded for Lot. And because Abraham prayed, by the way, Lot had no knowledge of that prayer. We do. He did it. But because Abraham prayed, the Lord remembered Abraham and blessed Lot. In the same way, Christ ever liveth to make intercession for you and for me from the right hand of the majesty on high. He is in the Father's ear mentioning you and me by name. Uh, there, there was a, uh, Robert Murray McShane has this fantastic quote about the intercession of Christ. He said, If I could hear, imagine this for a moment. If I could hear Christ in the room next to me praying for me, I would not fear a million enemies. Think about Jesus telling Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. He's coming for you, brother. Peter says, oh, dang. But the hope there that Jesus says is, but I have prayed for you. And when you return, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew Satan's plan. Jesus had prayed for Peter. Jesus knew Peter was going to fail. He was going to fall on his face. Peter didn't know that. No, I'll never deny you. Jesus knew he would. Jesus also knew that he would come back. When you have, I've prayed for you. Satan demanded, I have prayed. When you return, which assumes his fail and his repentance because Christ has prayed. When you return, strengthen your brothers. McShane says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. But listen to me, brothers, or listen to him. Distance makes no difference. Christ prays for you. Who will you fear? Uh, Lila asked this question as we were talking about this last night. Did Lot know that Abraham was praying? No, he didn't. We know he didn't know. But now we know who prays for us. We know that we have an advocate with the Father. When we sin, we have an advocate. We know that he is interceding for us, that he ever lives as a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
and he prays for us with the Father and he interposes his blood, his perfection, his covenant. And brothers and sisters, this same will be said of us. God remembered Christ and he sent us out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. You have right standing and good from the Father, even though you do not deserve it, all because you are in covenant relationship with Christ. And that is great, great news. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that our covenant standing with you does not depend upon us bearing the weight of covenant obedience all the days of our life. We live like that all the time. I live like that all the time. Like, if I don't lift this thing, that you're not going to come through. Meanwhile, Christ has already borne our burdens. By his cross, he has dealt once for all with our sin. By his life of obedience, he has bestowed upon us perfection of righteousness. And he sits at your right hand, interceding for us. Lord, help us, unlike Lot, that we would not fear a million enemies because Christ prays for us. And just because we cannot hear his voice does not mean that it is not so. He prays for us, and therefore, we will stand. We could stand no other way. We're not the right men on our side. Our striving would be losing. But we have the Son of God. We have the Word of God. We have the Spirit of God. All of which, Father, were given by you to us. Help us. Help us to have this kind of hope. Lord, we ask it in Christ's name for his sake. Amen.